You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Hi there, welcome to the show. Friday, January the 7th. Lovely morning here in TW11. Not quite as chilly as it was yesterday and beautifully sunny. Lots of rain forecast for Sandown Park's Tolworth Hurdle tomorrow. I will be talking about that a little bit later on in the programme, as I will with my guest today, about the possible reshaping of the whole jump season in the UK in order to make the racing a bit more competitive between now and the Cheltenham Festival. Much later in the programme, I will be focusing on global racing with James Willoughby, and today we'll be talking about owners and their standings in the TRC global rankings over the last four or five years, and it's an intriguing discussion and intriguing thoughts from James about the shift in the balance of power between Godolphin and Coolmore and how that pendulum might swing over the next few seasons. But first of all, uh, yesterday, round about 10 o'clock, uh, got the written reasons for the 18-month suspension, three months of those suspended, of Robbie Dunn in that case that we brought you in quite some depth before Christmas. That was the bullying and harassment case involving Bryony Frost. Uh, Lydia Hislop is with me today. Lydia, what new did we learn from the written reasons yesterday? Well, I would say that careful listeners of the Nick Luck Daily podcast won't have learned a great deal more because after all, Dave and Lee and I have attended and you've fully covered this case previously. But I suppose the, the, the it was detail that we learned and that focused in on process, what happened pre-trial, and those moments during the trial that were in camera for legal argument. We learned about that. We learned about how the panel proceeded to sift evidence and come to their conclusions, what was important and what was not in their view. And we also got to see the panel's view on a series of key issues, such as the delay to hearing the case, the leak, the way in which information got out to the press, criticism of Chris Watts, who was then the senior BHA investigator, the role of uh, Bryony Frost's family and management team, weighing room culture, um, the quality of the defence case and the panel's view, which had come out in their conclusions, but they went into more detail, of the two key people involved, namely Bryony Frost and Robert Dunn, Robbie Dunn. And something we discussed quite extensively when we talked about this first was the fact that, that really we felt that it was our instinct that the panel were focusing very heavily on the two key witnesses, on Frost and Dunn, and on their views of their evidence, the reliability of their evidence. And I think that's reinforced very strongly in the written reasons, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it very much is. And it's a great thing that these written reasons are accessible for anybody who wants to go onto the disciplinary panel. It's under the, the umbrella of the judicial panel website. Um, it's great that, that, that they can be accessed by the general public and that, that, that we can read through how justice was done and you can see justice being done. So if you go to point um, 111, um, it was common ground that the heart of the case was what was said and done and the reliability of those who gave evidence. They found Bryony Frost to be a truthful, careful and compelling witness. And in contrast, they found Robbie Dunn an unreliable witness. Um, they didn't accept Robbie Dunn's specific criticism of Bryony Frost riding. And even if there was force to that criticism, they pointed out, uh, this would not justify his conduct in any of the incidents that we considered. So how did they deal with what we described at the time as some of the, the surround sound, the issues of... Um, 
story being leaked to the papers, the issue of uh, whether Chris Watts at the time running the investigation for the BHA had, had acted properly at all times. How did they deal with, with all of those issues? Well, essentially, they found them not to be germane to the main point of the case. So we, we discussed this the day after the verdict came out. The main points were that they listened to what Bryony Foster had to say. They listened to what Robbie Dunn had to say. Uh, they uh, looked at a pattern of evidence over, uh, over a period of time. Um, they uh, found that uh, Hannah Welch, the former amateur rider's evidence, was probative. Um, that is, it um, demonstrated um, the allegations that were being made by uh, Bryony Frost. They were seen that her evidence very much supported Bryony Frost's arguments. And they also relied in terms of one of the specific charge at Stratford on the independent uh, fence attendant who remained anonymous, who came forward uh, independently uh, because he wanted to um, give his evidence. Um, that only came out as a result of the leak, in fact. Um, those were the things that were most significant in the panel's point of view. Everything else, as we said, was just white noise and surround sound. So they had, they had a number of things that they wanted to say. They, they talked about um, the delay and how uh, it was, uh, they were critical of the BHA for that. They talked about the leak and uh, they understood that this was distressing to, to Robbie Dunn. They weren't found to have weight in terms of the essential charges that were being brought against Robbie Dunn in terms of they, they, they didn't detract from the case, the, the essence of the case that the panel was considering. And at the end of all of this evidence being put forward, um, you know, whether um, Chris Watts had, had fully um, brought together all the evidence that available to him, this was just, this was the, the, the complaints about that were described as, as minor. Um, the, uh, they felt that the management team um, had on several occasions gone too far when dealing with Bridie Frost's written statement, but that there was no evidence that the actions were in anything other than good faith or aimed at accuracy and to, to meet deadlines. So all of these points were addressed during the course of the hearing. And then at the end of the prosecution argument, um, there, there was no application from Robbie Dunn's defence for abuse of process. And at point 109 on the reasons, uh, Brian Barker observes, that decision was entirely realistic. There was no grounds upon which it could properly be made. One or two interesting uh, uh, bits of, of evidence within the written reasons didn't get much play during the hearing itself. And, and one of those was a, a specific race that Robbie Dunn and Bryony Frost rode in Lydia that's um, quite understandably caused a lot of people to go back and watch it and say, well, I mean, didn't see anything wrong there. This was a race at Leicester, which Bryony Frost won and Robbie Dunn finished second. Uh, what's your read on that? Well, the, it, it's one item of evidence in a pattern of behaviours outside of the, the, the three core incidents which took place at Stratford, Utoxeter and Southall. Um, and if you take, say, let, you it on the Leicester case, if you take that in isolation, on the outside, if you look at, look at what happened between those two riders, um, the outward facts uh, of those events might not seem significant. But the point is that Bryony Frost viewed them as having an underlying meaning, not a one-off event, and part of a pattern of behaviour towards her. Yeah. And having heard all of the evidence, this being one element of it, the panel accepted that to be proven. Yes, I mean, if you show, showed me that video uh, of the Leicester race, and the horse that uh, Robbie Dunn rode was called Lick Penny Larry, and it was the 13th of February of, of 2020, if you want to go and look it up, it, you know, you'd say, well, well, there's nothing to see here. I don't see anything particularly untoward nothing really that the stewards could have looked at but that is to take it out of the context in which it hmm. was introduced as a piece of 
um, supporting evidence. He, he hasn't actually been charged with anything to do with that ride. It's, it's, that should be stressed. It's not as though he has been suspended because of that ride. It has to be reviewed, viewed within context. So this is the problem with picking out individual elements rather than doing as the panel have, hearing all of the evidence given before them with the opportunity for two people, one person representing the BHA who are bringing the case, one person representing Robert Dunn um, who were defending him, being able to probe, cross-examine and test all of that evidence. That's what the panel listened to. That's what everybody and the, the, the watching um, press saw. And, and it's all of the balance of that information that they've come together, weighed and come to their conclusions. Now, the issue of weighing room culture, Lydia, got a big play on this podcast and elsewhere during the course of the, of the hearing. When you look through all the written reasons, understandably, that you know the focus is much more sharply, as we've discussed, on Frost, on Dunn, on their evidence. But that doesn't mean to say that uh, Brian Barker and, and the panel's um, reasons don't take stock of that debate surrounding, surrounding weighing room culture in a couple of really quite important footnotes. Just, just detail those for me. Uh, essentially the panel was bothered by the fundamental contradiction that when the evidence, the breaches were put to Robbie Dunn, he had accepted that his behaviour on the day at Southwell um, had been a breach of rule J20. And so that's the lesser uh, breach that he'd been verbally abusing and threatening to Bryony Frost in an improper manner, but that none of the jockeys present nor the valets noted anything particularly unusual or out of the ordinary. It also mentions that the valets have a loyalty to the family ethos of the weighing room. They notice that they all use the same word, the panel noticed that they all use the same word bickering in their evidence. Um, in 127, they say, the evidence that other senior jockeys of standing heard nothing over and above a regular spat when considered alongside Mr Dunn's denial of the more serious violent as opposed to improper language concerned us. Um, they noted that Tom Scudamore's evidence required the panel to find that Mr Dunn used words indicating a desire to put Bryony Frost through the wing of a fence. Uh, that these words have been used on other occasions and the threats not carried out is nothing to the point. They were intended to threaten Bryony Frost, who took them seriously. Then at point uh, 143, they say the panel reminded themselves in Robbie Dunn's favour that some at least of the facts found involved Mr Dunn operating within a culture approbated by his peers. Observers observed without intervention. If this is the weighing room culture, then it is out of step in equal opportunity race riding. We were scrupulous to avoid treating Mr Dunn as the sole individual finding the impugned behaviour acceptable. And Lydia, there was one further postscript. The second of these was about um, the culture um, amongst the community of professional jockeys or in the weighing room, and the panel said, as these reasons show, we had some concerns about it, but our role was to inquire into the conduct of Mr Dunn. It is for others to reflect upon more general matters. We confine ourselves to recording our concern arising out of the specific facts of this particular case. The other um, postscript, by the way, is just a legal point in many ways about what constitutes conduct that would cross the line um, from J20, the lesser charge, into J19. And they just made the point that this was the threshold here was was breached uh, quite easily and that in future where to draw that line should be done on a case by case basis. And Lydia, whilst mindful of the fact that there remain, you know, starkly differing and entrenched views on this case, even though it has been concluded for now, uh, you can't help, however you view it, coming to the conclusion that 
Robbie Dunn's defence was not very effective. We discussed this as well, haven't we? A couple of times. Yeah. I, 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 and I think that's right. Um, the the panel, I think, took that view as well. And uh, again, if you go to point one four two, um, there was no expression of remorse. The defence involved calculated attacks in various directions. The plea entered was so limited by comparison to the conduct found that it attracted neither credit nor reduction. Um, I, I think that means that the panel were, in essence, very, very critical of the approach of the defence and their tenor and quality of argument. OK, so as I said, seven days to appeal from yesterday. No news of an appeal yet. Uh, let's talk about um, the jump season as a whole, Lydia, and um, Ruth Quinn, senior figure at the, the BHA's racing department, or runs, runs BHA's racing department, has, um, ha- has made quite a sort of bold statement about how a, a panel in, intends to reshape national hunt racing to make it more competitive in Britain and to make a, a, a meaningful challenge to, to the Irish. How are they going to go about doing it? Well, first of all, they've uh, revealed what their aims and recommendations are. The five aims are, one, to see Britain's best horses more regularly running against each other outside of the Cheltenham Festival. Two, to make Britain's best horses and stables more competitive against those representing Ireland. Three, to encourage more of the sport's high investing owners to have their horses trained in Britain. Four, to neutralise prize money as a consideration for owners when decisions are taken about whether a horse is trained in Britain or Ireland. And five, to produce a race programme that is consistently more engaging to punters, fans, the media and racegoers. I don't know about you, Nick. I think it's pretty hard to argue with any of those five aims. You can't argue with any of them, obviously, but how realistic and how achievable is it? And and is the the sport in a position to be moulded accordingly? Well, that's the key point, I think, really, isn't it? So there's only two recommendations put forward at this point, and they are broad. And those two recommendations are incentivise greater competition between the sport's leading horses in all divisions by implementing some potentially significant changes to the jump pattern and listed programme, focusing primarily on the enhancement and refinement of Britain's graded and listed races. And two, to deliver a significant prize money increase for British jump racing with suggested measures to include the setting of increased minimum prize money levels that encourage owners and trainers to run horses and also reward those racecourses most willing to invest in purses. If I start with two and go back to one, they're talking about using um, levy board funding and targeted levy board funding in order to achieve that. And in my view, I think that is a a good use of levy board money in terms of securing the long-term benefit of the breed, of of racing and and, and securing the long-term future. I mean, the levy board, one of its key principles is about that and uh, improving the breed uh, and ensuring the the quality of racing. And so there is a lot of consonance between what the aims of the uh, quality racing, jump racing review group want to achieve in terms of uh, improving that that quality and making it more competitive and what the fundamental principles of the levy board are so you can see that that money could be directed in that way provided that the industry agrees and race courses will also be incentivized to raise their own contributions and the detail there will be very interesting it's clear that they plan to um, reduce the number of a, uh, of a number of grade two races and convert a small number of weight for age races into handicaps. Ascot's Clarence House Chase, uh, which is due to be staged later this month, and at this stage, wah, wah, could include a clash between Ennegamen 
and Shishkin. Uh, the, there was talk about uh, how, by Ruth Quinn in this article about how that race um, used to be a really compelling handicap. Everybody always cites the 1989 running when um, Desert Orchid gave £22 to Panto Prince and edging him out in a photo finish, or Well Chief's victory in 2005. Yeah, Azerti um, up against Izio. Um, absolutely, just failed. Yeah. Exactly. These are some of the great, you know, handicap performances. So clearly that is something that is being considered. Um, but the point is that the next stage, if the next stage is involved, the BHA consulting with stakeholders and putting together a plan. And this is always where radical or pure minded ambitions tend to falter in this sport. But that is the next stage. Um, the Quality Jump Racing Review Group doesn't have the authority or remit to allow to allocate or review prize money models or to amend the jumps programme. Um, but the overarching objectives have been approved in principle with the BHA board. And that means that they can seek to progress discussions on how to deliver the recommendations. And this will involve detailed input from existing industry groups, such as the Jump Patent Committee, the Fixtures and Funding Group, um, and the BHA executive will work with the relative race courses and participant representatives and other interesting parties to develop these proposals and have an implementation plan for the 2022-23 jump season. Hmm. Well, I, I like the sound of it. Let's hope, as you say, once the proposals get put in place, that they, they, are, they can then be adopted, that they can then be a sort of practical application of them. You mentioned Shishkin and Ergumen. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to miss the opportunity to ask you uh, what's going to happen if those two do turn up in the Clarence House Chase at Ascot a couple of Saturdays from now. Well, it could be fabulous, couldn't it? That would be absolutely brilliant, I think. Um, and I think in that particular case, everything would be in Enegamen's favour. Whereas I think it's possible that were the two of them to meet in the Queen Mother Champion Chase, that most things would be in Shishkin's favour. So I think it's the perfect opportunity for Enegamen, um, two mile one, right-handed, you know, the ground will be, will be testing enough. I wonder whether Shishkin will, will, will run there. I mean, Nicky Henderson, immediately after the horse won the Desert Orchid, was, was wondering whether the Clarence House um, would be coming a little bit too soon. He has history of feeling that the ground there is, is too testing for a horse he's aiming for the champion chase at that time of year. And he always has the option of the Game Spirit, which is a race he's used as a stepping stone before that's at Newbury. But um, clearly, if these um, proposals are carried through from the Quality Jump Racing Review Group, um, whether there will be... Um, those choices of easy, easy grab conditions races uh, might be doubtful. And I, I, I suspect that um, Nicky Henderson might be an a, opponent of, of these ideas. And you know, judging by what Willie Mullins said about the Savile's Day, New Year's Day ch chase uh, subsequent to that, um, the, the two trainers are of a pretty similar mindset in terms of how they want to campaign some of their horses ahead of Cheltenham. Of course. And why, why, why wouldn't they be? Uh, Nicky Henderson at one point was suggesting he couldn't find a race for John Bond, his good novice hurdler. He's declared the Rossington Main novices hurdler at, at, at Doncaster as the... Uh, no, it's Haydock, isn't it? Sorry, it's Haydock now, isn't it? It used to be Don Doncaster. It is Haydock, isn't it? The Rossington Main? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, he's declared the Rossington Main novices hurdler at Haydock as the next task for him. And it was, it was there for him, for him to take and he's taken it. And that means Constitution Hill, as we've discussed already on this podcast this week, goes to the Tolworth Hurdle at Sandown Park tomorrow, for which he's a very short price favourite, Lydia. It's, it's not a cakewalk if he can demolish uh, this lot as he demolished Mai Tai, who doesn't run tomorrow, uh, last time, then, then we've got something on our hands if we didn't know it already. Yeah, I think this is a really good race. I mean, that's all right. Gino is, is honest. He won at Cheltenham last time. Jatoile is progressive. Mr. Glass has got a pretty good reputation. And shall we have one more? Well, 
if they can manage to make him more tractable, he looks as, as though he's got a huge amount of ability. Well, the horse we mentioned there, Shall We Have One More, is trained by Gary Moore, who's having a sensational season. And uh, horses continue to run extremely well under both codes. Uh, Gary, this horse looked like he had lots of talent at, at Ascot. This is a big ask tomorrow. Is that a measure of the regard you hold him in? It is indeed, yeah. Um, yeah all went wrong with Ascot and still ran a very good race. The third has come out well, well since. You know, um, but um, I mean, it's a tough ask for him tomorrow, but I hope that the pace is strong so we can settle him out the back and then stay on through them, you know. I mean, you and everyone else will have seen Constitution Hill last time. What did you make of it? You're a seasoned, seasoned observer of these things, and we get carried away with horses bounding up the Sandown Hill. What did you think? Impressed with him, as as everyone was. But um, I just wonder what did he beat? Mm. I, I don't know. I don't know the strength of the form. I might be making myself look really excited that, but I just wonder what he beat. You know. You mentioned that Shall We Have One More needs to sort of switch off and settle. Is is basic speed his biggest asset? Yes, it is, yeah. 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 He has a fair turn of foot, you know. He's got, he's got quite a flat pedigree, really. You know? um, yeah, he has got a fair turn of foot. Uh, and would very soft ground be a bother or not? No, it helped him. It helped him. He's an authorised and he's got quite a lot of knee action as well. So, I mean, I've never run him on very soft ground, but um, I think it will help him. He scored the other morning on very soft ground and he was dynamite on it. You've got other interesting runners at, at Sandown, none more so perhaps than a, than a horse you run in the in the juvenile hurdle. You've got a great record with horses like this, a horse called Moulin Clermont. Um, what yeah. went wrong at Fontwell on his debut for you? God only knows. I couldn't believe him got beat. I thought it was just a case of turning up, you know. Um, unbelievable uh, what happened that day. I'll be, I'll be quite honest, I'll be surprised if he gets beat tomorrow. I'm honest with you, but... Um, you know, he, he got beat in Fonwell. I took tests on everything I could do. I took tests on everything before he runs tomorrow, and everything's good. Um, you know, and he's a lovely horse, and uh, you know, he, he he's, he's a proper man. You know, he's not like a little flat race horse that's come off the flat. He's a proper, you know, a proper jumping type. You know, uh, Darabin obviously loves Sandown. I mean, adores the place, and ran another super race there last time. Has he got another another hurrah in him round his favourite track? Well, I, I certainly hope so. I, 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 I'm in deep trouble if he doesn't because the owners wanted me to run in the, uh, the two-mile race. They said he won't get two and a half. I think he will. I think it's a lot easier than what the two-mile race was. But um, And so they left it with me, but, um, which was very good of them. But I'll probably end up with egg on my face, but I hope I don't. <laughs> and natural history is quite a short price in the in the valuable handicap hurdle a, a little bit later on. Again, it's not really been a story of Anna Lloyd's success so far this season, but it's quite a short price. That's, that's ridiculous. A lot of my horses are going off stupidly short at the moment, you know, um, which is is worrying. <laughs> but uh, I mean, the, the horse the horse is is in good order and everything, and he's another one that needs a good strong pace in the race, you know. Gary, you're nine from thirty in the last two weeks. I wouldn't want to be laying him at big prices. No, oh, well, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. But I did have four favourites get beat in front of the other day as well. So. <laughs> How's Goshen getting on? Yeah, he's in good order. I just hope and pray that we have this Linfield meeting that goes ahead, which is now looking doubtful. Which is probably looking doubtful with the day they decided on it anyway. But um, you know, like uh, I just hope it goes ahead because I'd love to run him there. What, the, the winter million? Are you, you're already worrying about the weather? 
They're already, they're already virtually sadly off anyway, aren't they? Are they? Yeah. Oh yeah. my, my word! I didn't, I didn't know that. That would be a shame. So what? So he go to Lingfield if you can, and what if you can't? He, he will do. Uh, what if he can't? Then he, 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 um, but if he can't, I, I might run him in the Lanzarote. Okay, so that's two five at a uh, under a under a big weight. And and how about editor Dujit? He's sort of right in that in that cusp now between top handicapper and Grade One horse. What are you going to do with him? Well. I've made a, um, I made a stupid entry in a champion chase because he runs so well at Cheltenham, which I nearly had to do because he, he's out of handicaps now. And uh, he goes for the game spirit, as long as it's not too soft. Trainer Gary Moore there with some exciting and ambitious plans. There is not a yard in the country in better form at the moment. There's not too many jockeys in better form than Stan Shepherd. With 67% of the vote, he is Great British Racing's Jockey of the Month. Uh, thank you for voting. Uh, Stan spoke to me a little earlier. I asked him just how he appreciated the significance of riding I Will Do It to Victory for Welshman Sam Thomas in the Welsh Grand National, the highlight of his December. I don't think I perhaps realised how big a deal it was at the time, writing writing it for a, a Welsh trainer, um, which I sort of saw Sam afterwards. It was something I realised how much of a big deal it was to someone who's only really started training quite recently, and it'd be the highlight of his career so far. And hopefully, he can go on from there. And just in terms of, of the way you, you began this year, you, you ride a lot for, for Tom Lacey. You've, you, you've ridden plenty of winners for, for him. Um, t- to what extent has he really been the person who's, who's propelled your career forward? Excuse oh, me, he's made a massive difference. Um, it was sort of left pools and then he gave me a few chances the first and second year. He supported me this year very well. You mentioned your, your grounding with, with Paul Nichols. How long were you there for? Um, I think I was there five years in total, three years as three years with an amateur license and two years with a conditional one. And what what do you feel that that gave you? What did you what did you learn from from that experience? It's it's, it's a lot more competitive down there. I sort of think if I sort of stayed at home, I'd have never really got any better. But you're competing. Uh, I was down there at the time competing with the likes of Sean Bowen and Harry Cobter, and competing with fellas like that, you have to get better yourself. And you, you've got a, a seasonal total of 29 to beat, but it looks like you're going to co- comfortably beat that if things go the way they are. Uh, if they carry on going go the way they are and we stay in good health, which is the main thing, they should get that hopefully before the end of January. Um, you've donated your, your prize of £500 to, to charity uh, to the Midlands Air Ambulance. Just tell me why that means so much to you personally. Uh, well, my, my mother had quite a bad fall out hunting quite a few years ago. And uh, she needed an air ambulance that day, and it's not very often people in racing need it, but when when they do, it can often be the difference. Stan, thanks so much for talking to us. Uh, best of luck for the next few weeks, and congratulations again. Thank you very much. It's Friday, which means it's time to have a look at the Thoroughbred Racing Commentary Global Rankings. And today, I think for the first time in this slot, we're looking exclusively at owners or ownership groups and their uh, varying fortunes, particularly in the last four or five years. This is the current top 10. So at the end of 2021, the top 10 stood as follows. At 10, the Kentucky-based Windstar Farms. You'll uh, see their principal, Elliot Walden, regularly on, on television. Life is good, their flag bearer at the moment, also responsible for the co-ownership of Improbable. They're in a number of high-level partnerships. And the same can be said for the owner at number nine, Michael Dubby partners up with a, a lot of high-profile stables. He's been involved in Monomoy Girl, most celebratedly, and Tribuven particularly earned him a lot of points. 
Eight is Judmont Farms. Now, what are the future uh, for Judmont Farms? Not so big in Europe, still quite big in America, still getting points for the likes of Enable and Siskin, uh, Tacitus, and Mandaloon, I suppose, their flag bearer now, and a couple of good two-year-olds coming out of France as well. Seven, Clarovich Stables, Seth Klarman, the principal there, Bricks and Mortar, domestic spending, uh, their big two horses in recent years. Six, Silk Racing Company Limited, the first of our Japanese in the top 10. And just a point above them, Sunday Racing Company Limited. You'll know them from Gran Allegria, Chronogenesis, the familiar black colours with the cro- red cross belts. You see them all across the big races in, in Japan. Up four is Bob Peters, Peters Investments. Now they're based in Western Australia. Very high strike rate performers, very shrewd operation. Uh, Bob and his wife, Western Empire, Regal Power, regulars in the top 10. Now at three, now this is interesting, Shadwell Estate Company. Um, we've lost Sheikh Hamdan in the last 12 months, as we have uh, Judmont's principal, Prince Khaled Abdullah. Uh, Sheikh Hamdan's operation much more severely rationalized at the back end of 2021, but they've had an amazing uh, run of success on the race course the last couple of seasons with the likes of Mahatha and Hakam, and particularly Baid, who is still right up there in the top 10 and is set to be a great flag bearer in 2022. And Jim Crowley, their rider is the highest Shadwell rider ever in these rankings at number 11, incidentally. And then there's a huge gap to the big two. And as in the last three or four years, Coolmore partners giving best to Godolphin. At two Coolmore partners and at one Godolphin with that extraordinary run of success under the stewardship of Charlie Appleby. So James Willoughby is here as he is every Friday. And I suppose the, the first thing to pick up on, James, is the battle of the superpowers and where they stand in relation to one another now compared to uh, where they stood three or four years ago. Yeah, the situation was reversed. And uh, generally speaking, Coolmore have had the better of it during the TRC global rankings era. We've now entered a very interesting passage of play between these two. Of course, it's a a zero-sum game at the top of European racing and indeed world racing, you might argue, because the top prizes have to go into one hand or the other. Coolmore had dominant statistics for 10, 15 years, mainly because you could argue that Darley Godolphin didn't really have their house in order. Now they do. Now they've got a world-class, world number one trainer at the helm in Charlie Appleby. And Aidan O'Brien hasn't been able to maintain the rate of success as in his glory years. No doubt he's still the same brilliant trainer, but it means that he's just been squeezed out. Think of those national stakes over there in Ireland last few years. They've gone to Charlie Appleby. The Irish Derby went to Charlie Appleby. If you did a a map of the dominance of the two operations, well, that dark blue wall is just receding and the the kind of light blue, the, uh, the, the royal blue, the Godolphin blue, is just beginning to march wider and wider. But the times they are are changing. And when you look at the two operations, what determines their future success is stallion power. Now, what's interesting is that thanks to Appleby and the gayaths of this world, um, Dubawi continues to go from strength to strength. Knight of Thunder is doing really well for them at the moment. They've got Palace Pier coming on the books. Pinatubo, goodness me. The list goes on. Space Blues will be joining the fold soon, I imagine, as well. Too darn hot. But there's been this blip, probably, where Coolmore naturally had their resources, in all their resources, all their best mares in Galileo. That's where their prime hopes were. Now, Galileo has begun to recede in terms of success. He's still brilliant compared to nearly all 
uh, other stallions around them, but not enjoying the numerical dominance. But look at this cool more roster, roster, Nick. It's very interesting to look at. This is their American roster at the moment. American Pharaoh, Caravaggio, Justify, Maximum Security, Mendelssohn, Tis the Law, and Uncle Mo. Now, that is absolutely brilliant. And many of those stallions are still at their nascent period of growth. And it's same as well in, in um, Coolmore in Ireland as well. They've got a tremendous roster of horses that have still got their best days as stallions ahead of them. Australia, Calix, Camelot, Churchill, Glen Eagles. I, I really rate highly in, uh, uh, if you look at his numbers at the margin. He's a very, very good sire, I think. No Nay Nevers produced as well. St. Mark's Basilica's joined the strength. Sotsass. They've got a lot of a lot of weapons, a lot of really top-notch size. Wooden Bassett, of course, they would put at the top uh, themselves. Um, and I think this situation could change again. I think basically, if you thought of these two operations as like football clubs, it's like Coolmore at the moment are in a rebuilding phase almost. They're just switching their resources, just redistributing their resources around the different stallions they've got, both here and in America. And they will be back challenging at that top table. Not that they've gone that far from it, but you know what I mean. They'll be challenging Godolphin for that hegemony, for that number one spot globally that Sheikh Mohammed's operation has at the moment very, very soon. And it's this battle which drives the interest in European racing. And when people say that flat racing lacks interest because of this, they must be following a different sport to me because I think it makes it. And that um, goes back to the conversation we were having earlier in the week on this podcast with with Lee Mottishead about why the the viewing figures for jump racing seem to be that much higher than viewing figures for for, for flat racing, and we 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 were scratching our heads trying to work out why flat racing can't hard. seem can't seem to can't seem to reach yeah. people in the same in the same way, James. I agree, Litnik. Yeah, they, it can't. No, I, I don't find that hard to understand myself though. If you look at the British media, nearly everybody's a jump racing fan, aren't they? They may say they're flat racing fans, but the truth of the matter is they prefer jump racing. And so jump racing is broadcast with more passion, I would argue, overall than is flat racing. I think broadcasters need to find the key more and broaden out the way flat racing is broadcast. I think it needs to be done at at the level at which people who love flat racing do. You can't make it into jump racing. It's not this parade of kind of like highly emotional occurrences where somebody who you know manages to win the grand national has only got one horse or whatever or those are the wrong themes for flat racing the themes for flat racing are like formula 1 that they're 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 battles of the superpowers they're battles of technology in formula 1 training and breeding in flat racing they need to tap into those themes more and explain how those work to the general public not try and make flat racing into something which it is not and I think that is what's there's nothing essentially wrong with the sport at all. It doesn't need to change just because of some viewing figures. That's preposterous, in my view. It's the broadcasters themselves that need to up their game. They need to change their plan of attack and they need to get to the heart of what makes flat racing tick, which is breeding pedigrees power. And that's what people like in other things. They like it in powerboat racing. They like it in Formula One. They could like it in flat racing in two if that's the way it's sold to them. Duly noted. Let's talk about some of the other um, 
entities in this top 10, James, and the, those who are going to rise and those who are likely to fall. Now, sadly, Prince Khalid Abdullah has died, as has Sheikh Hamdan al Maktoum. So the positions of Judmont and Shadwell in this top 10 surely aren't, aren't particularly secure. Um, but does that mean that the gap between Godolphin and Coolmore and the rest is simply going to widen inevitably over time? Right. Well, these are questions that I'm talking about. It's so fascinating, isn't it, to predict what might happen. This redistribution of power and horses around the, the racing world, around the, the map, and these massive operations that we've got very used to seeing at the top of the tree, some of them have faded just through natural wastage of their best stallions and their best horses. Others because uh, that their proprietors have deceased, etc. And things are probably more in flux right now than they've ever been. So what's the racing map going to look like in 10, 15 years? Will there be something of a power vacuum underneath the two gargantuan operations right at the top of the tree that we're talking about? Will we see an influx of wealth, of money from an unexpected part of the world? Will the American owners step forward more in the way that they did 25, 30, 40 years ago? It's all to be to be played out, all to be seen. And I think that's what makes global flat racing. And I use that word pointedly and advisedly. I don't think you can have a parochial outlook if you're really going to understand the sport. You have to look to all frontiers because the major owners, their reach is global. And so to appreciate the picture and how it is changing, we can't just look at things like sires championships in Britain, which we seem to be absolutely obsessed with when um, monitoring stallions, etc. We need to look to all the different countries all around the world and how their racing is being shaped by the power brokers underneath. And TRC Global Owners Rankings gives you each week that immediate snapshot of how things are, how things stand, and how things are going to be. Who do you think is likely to make a more significant impression over the next 12 months? Who are the ones to watch? It's very, that, that, now that is a very, very difficult question to, to answer. I'm not sure when uh, at all, really. I mean, again, speaking globally, what I would expect is that the American ownership model might proliferate a bit more. Now, by that, I mean... If you look at Windstar Farm, they have pioneered kind of syndicates joining up with other big or medium-sized owners to really kind of spread the risk, which, which is a kind of obviously uh, an approach from the financial world to diversify their portfolio, if you will, uh, and give themselves a more consistent return. And they've done that extremely successfully. Now, I can't say right now, who are going to be the people that do that sort of thing, which are the owners that are going to join together. But I would expect that we'll see this multiple nuclei situation fuse into a smaller number of these operations which come together perhaps and start to think to themselves, well, there's an opportunity here. There's an opportunity in the wake of Shadwell not being the force it was, of Judd Monty not being the force it was. We haven't even spoken about the Aga Khan yet, and there are plenty of others. The two Qatar operations punching at nowhere near the, the weight that they did a few years ago. There, there is an opportunity there around the world, not just in Europe, for conglomerates of medium-sized owners to really start flexing their muscles, joining up. And that's the way I think it might go.
Thanks to James, to all my guests today. Lydia's here, has got a tip for you. Yeah, I'm going to go um, to Weatherby the two o'clock and I'm going for Gran Torino, who is seeking a hat-trick. I think the way in which this race is, go- is likely to develop is going to suit her um, much better than uh, the horse that has been well-backed against her. That is Jerryville, who in his two races for Mickey Hammond so far has been well held up. He's been backed into favourite, flip-flopping ahead of Gran Torino. And while she is still the bigger price, nine to four, five to two, I think that's a good price. Lydia, thanks so much. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again on Monday. That was Friday, January the 7th. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.